Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello. It's such a pleasure to be participating in this Society for the History of Children and Youth podcast. I'm Marlo Daly Galliano, Associate Professor of English and Director of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Lewis Clark State College in Lewiston, Idaho. I'm so happy to be here today with the editors of our featured book, Reading Transatlantic Girlhood in the Long 19th Century, published by Rutledge in 2020. Before we start chatting, I'd love to tell you a little about these two amazing scholars. Robin L. Cadwallader is a professor of English and the director of the Women's Studies Program at St. Francis University, Pennsylvania, where she teaches American literature, women's literature, young adult literature, and theory. She has published and presented on 19th century American women writers and culture, edited Mary Rankin's Daughter of Affliction, and co-edited Rebecca Harding Davis's Stories of the Civil War Era, Selected Writings from the Borderlands, and Saving the World, Girlhood and Evangelicalism in 19th Century Literature. Dr. Cadwallader's recent publications include Rebecca Harding Davis, Preserving History Through the of Literary Journalism, which appears in Women's Studies, an interdisciplinary journal. Her current projects include a collection of Davis's business correspondence and a monograph on the role of gossip in women's literature. Luella Diamico is an associate professor of English and coordinator of women's and gender studies at the University of the Incarnate Word in San Antonio, Texas. Her primary research interests lie in girlhood, girl culture, and women's religious writing in the early and 19th century American literature. She has edited a volume about the history of girls series books in the U.S. titled Girls Series Fiction and the American Popular Culture and is co-editor with Robin Cadwallader of Reading Transatlantic Girlhood in the Long 19th Century. Her articles have appeared in Children's Literature Association Quarterly, Girlhood Studies, ESQ, a journal of 19th century American literature and culture, women's studies, and numerous other venues. Dr. Diamico currently serves as president of the Harriet Beecher Stowe Society and is editing Harriet Beecher Stowe's children's writing with Dr. Cadwallader for Oxford University Press's The Collected Works of Harriet Beecher Stowe. So thank you both for talking with me today. Um, I just loved this book. And um, to start with, I was hoping maybe we could talk a little about the keywords in your title, reading transatlantic girlhood. Um, I think that each of these words is really important to the project. And in your introduction, you take some time to share how you define the terms. Could you talk about reading Transatlantic Girlhood as a title and how you made the decisions about what kinds of authors, texts, ideas, essays um, you wanted to include in here? Sure. So I think each of these, Robin and I went 
<laughs> back and forth for a while about the exact verbiage that we wanted for the title. And we finally decided to begin with that active verb of reading purposefully. And I'm going to spend, I, I feel like that's that's the one that probably gets skipped over the most, but we do spend yeah. some time, as you mentioned it, in the introduction talking about this, right? That the act of reading by girls is a way for them to explore travel, right? It's a way for them to explore the world for a lot of girls who didn't have access to going anywhere to travel, right? I mean, you define who you are, especially as a young person, right? By books, right? You begin to know you know, like, who am I? Who, what is this world? And you do this through reading. Um, another thing that we mention about reading in the introduction is that reading in the 19th century was something that was thought of differently, especially in women's writing, and that it was really thought to be transactional, right? That there was this idea that if you were reading, that you should have some sort of spiritual experience, especially in women's literature and girls' literature. And oftentimes this idea of reading in sort of a secular sense has sort of been taken away, right? That, that we read to gain knowledge, but we don't necessarily um, have an immediate idea of transformation for it, right? When I'm going on Twitter, right? I'm not leaving the next moment and thinking, right, I might be transformed. I might get angry for a second, right, at a tweet, right? But I'm not leaving, right, and thinking, right, my soul has been transformed. It might be a little sadder, right? But there's not the expectation that I've been transformed in some way, right? But when you're reading in the 19th century, especially as a child, there was the expectation that your soul would be transformed, that you would be different in some way. So there's a lot packed into that. So I'll let Robin take the next one. Do you want to go for transatlantic? Atlantic. <laughs> so the whole idea of the transatlantic came about when I had an office mate who contributed to this book, um, by the way. But my office mate studied um, British literature and childhood in Victorian times. And we always talked about the connections that we made here in the office in our readings and the things we were, you know, writing about at the time. And I said, you know, we really need to think about this transatlantic thing. And it just seemed like there was a moment in time when not only were we talking about it, but other people were too. And so it seemed to just float upward and become something that was important to understanding girlhood, however we define that, in the 19th century and the transatlantic nature of not only travel but reading is important so yeah. you know how the books traveled but how books traveled from one side of the pond to the other and were read and reproduced in um, maybe letters or something home or however they were looking at it from their own experiences so I think we used transatlantic very broadly, not in the sense that there were writers on this side and writers on that side, but in that they're very interconnected. And, and to be able to read today the way these writers and travelers and girls and readers and everybody just came together in this moment of, you know, I, I think about the grand tour, right? And and how this time period that we looked at was really so important to the coming of age 
of many girls at the time. <clears throat> so I think this pings back to me to girlhood, which is probably one of my favorite topics to talk about. And we really define girlhood broadly. And we we went to do this. So the book talks about how girlhood in in our in our book goes from five to 50, right? That is our age range. And the idea is that girlhood really is not so much chronological, but it is in literature, the site of possibility, right? That when you think about girlhood, you think about change, you think about newness, you think about hope. And so this might be someone who is quite little but it might be someone who is going abroad, who's going on this transatlantic journey across the pond and is seeing themselves with new eyes. So the example of the 50-year-old that we have is Catherine Raya Sedgwick, who writes these letters from abroad. And this was Jordan Van Cannon's essay. And she talks about how Sedgwick is abroad. And then she remembers herself as a girl. And she begins to re- re-envision herself as she thinks about who she was in the United States and who she is now. And as these letters go from Europe back to the United States, there is this idea in the United States as has always been as America as sort of this female country, this virginal country, this young girl country. And a lot of times, as you're reading novels, you'll begin to automatically begin to consider this sort of literary landscape, not only of the woman, Catherine Raya Sedgwick, who is envisioning herself as a, as a girl at 50, right, having this new site of possibility going through her own personal experience, but also all of the readers that she's writing the, these letters to and who are then reading them and consuming them begin as well, begin to think, well, what is America? as this national place, as Sedgwick is envisioning it, how is it beginning to change as she makes contact in Europe and begins to write about this? Who are we as we experience her new eyes? So girlhood is really more a side of possibility rather than simply a chronological age. And I, think I really, too, oh, I think, go I ahead. Think too, I'm sorry, but I think too, it implies a certain innocence too. In embarking on experience and and how um, I know the writer that I used, um, Adelaide Trafton, she she was so disenchanted by Europe. She just couldn't wait to get back home. And I think there's that certain innocence that, as Luella said, you you see it with with different eyes, and you have to open yourself to that experience. And some weren't able to do that. And we found that too. So I think that innocence is always important to me too. <clears throat> I thought it was so interesting as I was reading the introduction and you said, you know, girlhood has this very capacious span uh, chronologically. I thought at first maybe the direction you were going to go was the way that women are sometimes, um, you know, diminished or, you know, referred to as girls or compared to girls in a way that is not um, generative or, you know, a place of potential. And so I really liked that that wasn't what you did, that you were looking at a different, um, a different notion, even if it is innocent, it's not pejorative, right? It's, it's the site of, um, potential growth. And, you know, I, 
I've come into this kind of work uh, through women's studies. And as you, you've talked about, literary studies has a much longer tradition of focusing on women, but not very much um, or not as recent, you know, it's only recently that we've really begun having these conversations about girls and paying that kind of attention to girls. Why do you think that's the case? I think we don't take girls seriously, right? I think this is the pejorative idea that that you were talking about, Marlo, that Traditionally, when you think of the heavyweights in literary studies, you are going to go for the writers like Ralph Waldo Emerson, Nathaniel Hawthorne, right? Um, you are going to go for these heavyweight writers. And then when you know, American women's writers were beginning to be recovered in the 19th century, you're going to go for those women heavyweights as much as you can too, right? Um, so I think you're going to to not necessarily pay attention to the girls in those stories. Even sometimes, as I first sort of started out in the field, I began to notice that novels that were really girls' novels were treated as women's novels. So Little Women, I think, is, is one example. Susan, um, Susan Warner's The Wide, Wide World, like it's very focused on Susan Warner, and it's talked about as, as women's studies, right? But not right. so much as a girl's book, right? And it really was a girl's book. So I, I think there is this idea of prestige. I think that's part of it. And also as girls as sort of being already the least important, right? Those voices aren't the ones that matter as much. They're not the ones that are going to get you, you know, the promotion and tenure as much, right? Um, they're just simply the ones who I think have been silenced for a long time. And so I think I think that's that's the negative part of it. I have I have a positive part, but I'll see if if Robin has something to add before I go into the positive. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's just girls stories, I guess would be something that would need to be talked about too, because I think children's literature in general is dismissed as not worthy of study. And children's literature being defined as written for children or written about children for adults, it's, it's, children aren't important. Children aren't important in a society that sees intellect and experience and, and purpose and value in adults. But in order to become an adult, everybody has to be a child. And so many of our children's stories have children who are an anomaly. They are not children. Yeah. They are little adults. And so when those stories are read and, you know, people publish on them, I think that's one of the things they point out a lot too, is that, you know, well, childhood this and childhood that, but they neglect the idea that childhood is important. I teach a class on uh, children in literature and it's called Innocence and Experience. And what I like them to see is that what my students today think of childhood is not the way childhood was in the past. And they learned so much from that about what it means to be a child and to go out as a teacher and teach children. The children are important. And I think literature for and about children has never been seen as important. 
And then you have, of course, Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, you know, those where the bad boy gets the attention. Um, but I think for girls, there aren't those kind of moments where they break all the rules and suddenly they're important in the world because the girl wouldn't do that and become important. That would mean she's not a girl or something. So I think we have that problem to deal with too. Yeah, there aren't necessarily girl scholars out there, right? There are women scholars, right? Men scholars, so there aren't girl scholars. One thing that I do think it's important to mention though is sort of the, not only the importance of why we're doing this in general, but the importance of what girls are to women. Um, we mentioned in the introduction that in doing this work and recovering girls' voices, it does end up connecting women to their past. It does end up bringing up so much that is not talked about, about what makes society who we are today, what makes women who we are today. And by not talking about those girl stories, we leave out so much of the past, and not only in the 19th century, but also in everything that comes into a woman until she's, you know, a certain age. We leave out the side of optimism, of possibility. Um, I talk a little bit about just walking around with, right, girls' books, right, in that moment, but another, like, woman looks at you and is like, oh, you're carrying little women. Let me tell you about when I read that, right? There is this sort of side of connection and excitement that happens with girls' literature, but I think it means it's important to study, right? It's, it's women's uh, stories that aren't necessarily studied in the same way and that we ought to take seriously as literary scholars. And just as I think women readers, you know, we connect to the stories of women and their growth and, and their struggle. I think too, women readers, adult women readers, connect to things of their childhood through the childhood literature. So we have our own childhoods in the 20th century to you know, look back on and say, well, yeah, I didn't think that was important, but now I can see how important that was and how that, whatever that experience was, contributed to who I am today. And we can see that through the literature, but then we see it in our own lives too. Yeah, especially these passed down stories. So <laughs> I know you're probably waiting to get to the next question, Marla, but I was thinking about it. Heidi, right, one of the, right, the ones that I wrote about, right, The Little Women's another example, right, some of these stories, right, have been passed down, right, through the generations, so they tell us about our own personal experiences with them, like I remember my mom reading Little Women to me, right, likely because her mom read it to her all the way back until the 19th century, and um, so we have these stories, and Heidi's another one that's like that that's covered in this book right so it tells us a little bit about our world now but it also reveals to us about the past um there's been a broader historical lens that if we don't get these stories then we don't actually analyze how we came to be who we are today in a very small sense but also a, a global sense i think that's a great point and as you know one of the kind of fun things that happened to me as I was reading 
in your book is when I read about the books that I had read as a child, like Heidi, I actually was filled with an image of what that book looked like. I could remember the illustrations and the covers. And um, as we all probably know, doing this kind of work, people always want to tell you about what their book looked like, you know, because it had this we had a connection to it as young readers um, that uh, sometimes we rediscover when we enter into scholarly work as adults. Yes, uh, people will bring me the copies <laughs> of their old books oftentimes to my office. I'm actually thinking I was looking over I'm, I'm gonna grab it in a second strangely um, I'll turn off my camera but I have a copy of of Heidi that someone brought to me after after reading this book. I mean it's right. And it's in German. Um, so they brought it to me, right? Because they read this and they remembered it, right? And I remember the copy that I had, this teeny tiny little copy and what it looked like. Um, and exactly like that was read everything about it. Um, but we do have these very specific picture memories, right? In addition to, you know, in addition to the actual words on the page. The feelings, right? The transactional yeah. reading that we were talking right. about earlier that happens when you're reading 19th century novels that are that are passed down through the generations. You can, can feel that in a different way. Well, and that's kind of a perfect segue into another thing I was hoping we could talk about, which is connection and um, collaboration in the humanities. You know, I think we just don't do as much collaborative scholarship as is the norm, say, in the sciences. And I've always considered collaborative writing. Oh, there it is. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm showing my book of Heidi that has the German. Just I so love it. <laughs> Yeah, but so um, just thinking about collaboration, um, I think it's a collaborative scholarship is a deeply feminist practice. And I really never get tired of hearing how my colleagues um, find places and ways to collaborate. So could you tell us the story of how the two of you came to work together on this book? How did it come about? I don't remember. <laughs> We've known each other for longer than the book. So were we, I don't, you tell the story then. I don't remember. Okay. Well, I always jump in first. I do remember. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> so Robin and I talk often and we often talk about books that we enjoy. Um, in fact, we'll call each other about other things that happen and inevitably we end up talking about books. <laughs> she will tell me she's always reading quirky books. <laughs> but one one day I can't and I can't remember, I cannot remember exactly what we were talking about. I think that it was a, a news story or something that we were on the phone out um, or something that had happened at one of our <laughs> works. Anyway, we're on the phone and we just began talking about transatlantic girlhood. Um, and we talked about perhaps doing this collection together. And then at the next um, Society for the Study of American Women Writers meeting, we went out, I hope you remember this, Robin, you may not, um, but there we were, 
had a, we had a lovely hotel and we had a coffee date <laughs> and we went yeah. out. No, see, now you remember. You're just pretending to remember. So, but we went out and then we just dreamt a little about what the structure and everything of this book might look like. Um, we talked about how girlhood has sort of taken off in terms of you know, how we talked about it in the United States in a lot of ways, but it really hasn't. We couldn't find any scholarship where people have looked at it from a transatlantic context. And there's almost nothing about the college novels. Um, so especially the Vassar Girls series, things like this about girls of the late 19th century going abroad to study. We couldn't really find any anything about this. And there does seem to be this idea that girls have to go abroad in the 19th century um, to sort of finish themselves, right? You have this idea of their their full learning. So that was really how it began. Um, it was just a phone conversation. I do want to say one, oh, Robin, you can talk, then, I'll, then I want well, to talk. I was, I was going to say, I think what happens is, though, we've known each other for longer than that. And we've talked about so many different things and different projects. And, and I think one thing leads to another leads to another and hey now we have a book <laughs> it wasn't quite that easy but but i do i am a person who would much rather do something collaborative than work on my own i don't like working on my own i don't like working in isolation um i just i think that having somebody to bounce ideas off of and work with, I think you create a much richer uh, product in the end. I really do. I, I think it's one of the best projects I've ever done. I, I agree. And I think Robin and I, because we have known each other for so long, have gotten into sort of a wonderful pattern of, of work, right? Um, and not just that, where we really hone each other's ideas um, because we do have such different ways of, of viewing the, the world in addition to having some ways of synergy. I think that collaborative scholarship as well is something that is, as you mentioned, Marlo, a really feminist practice that goes against so much of what academia values. I remember another Society for the Study of American Women Writers meeting that was all about edited volumes as, as just feminist feminist work and I think about that all the time now but it really is this way to get all sorts of different minds together to create something that is cohesive that is not just the sort of single author uh, singular approach but it does feel different right and I think it's interesting too that Again, this is not something that is as valued in the academy, right? This collaborative work, just in general, right? Whether you're co-authoring a paper, right? Creating a collection, um, it does feel subversive in a lot of ways because you are creating these sort of social networks. You are working together. You're making sure that it's not just about your own idea, but it's about creating the best idea for a community at large. It's about mentoring. It's also about being mentored. It's about refining your ideas, refining other people's writing. And I think that really is a space of social 
gathering and community practice that really is feminist in nature that I that I value quite a bit um, and that I try to to model in a lot of my writing. But it is, I think, counter to a lot of of academic scholarship in a way that is sort of traditionally valued in the academy. So I'm always excited to do it, right? And I, and I love the work that comes from it. Well, and I think that you feel that as you read this collection, you know, it does feel like many voices coming together and not in, you know, discrete and disparate ways, but there's a lot of overlap. And, um, you know, I, it was striking to me how so many of the essays uh, reference other essays in the collection in, and it's not just performative, it's actually in meaningful and substantive ways. Um, so, how did having your contributors read the collection, how do you think that shaped the editing process or the final volume? I'm not sure. For me, I think it changed. I think it changed everything and that it did create a more social space for everyone. The, the people in the collection know each other and they know each other's essays and as you read it you feel that right you feel yeah. this cohesiveness in it it doesn't read like a collection of essays that's just been sort of smashed together instead it feels as if you're reading a book that's the goal right if you're actually creating you know, a, a collaborative process you shouldn't just be reading you know hey, this is a topic, here you go. You should make sure that everyone has contributed, that they have made each other's writing better and that they have engaged with what each other is doing. But it's not just about them. It's not just about getting something out there in the world, right? But it's about creating this book together, that everyone owns it in some way and owns all of the ideas and it can speak to what everyone else has done. So when they go to conferences, when they're talking about the book, they feel as if they're talking about the book, right? They're not just talking about, well, I have this essay in this book, right? Which you might do if you are submitting something to a journal, right? Getting feedback, right? And you don't know what else is going to be in that journal. Um, that's not what an edited collection should be. It should be something that is communal, that should be holistic. So that's, that's the hope in here. Um, and so when we were editing, we did make sure to ask all of the readers, right, to go back and you know read other read each other's essays and then insert those and interweave it and make sure that that was being done not just at that sort of cursory level which does sometimes happen when you're when you're reading you know these right you actually have to to go through and and work through and make them reread um, and and talk to each other some. I I think one of the other things that it did and and I was thinking of this as you were talking is it really did help, I think, some people to find affirmation in what they were writing. So if you have an idea and no one else, you, you, you know, you do all the scholarship and you find all the, but your idea is different. And it's hard then to have that affirmation that what you're saying is important. Mm -hmm. And I think when for me anyway, but talking to the other writers too, I think as you start to see that other people are looking at things in the similar way that you are, you get an affirmation about, oh, maybe I'm not so far off then. Yes. And I think there was a, a sharing of 
maybe ideas, not that one person took another person's idea, but look how this idea supports what I'm saying. And you can see that in multiple works that it's not just an idea in isolation. And I think that's the one thing that I would say um, most people really didn't go back and do that cursory, like, oh, let me insert this here and let me put that there, but that it was very thoughtfully connected to what they were doing. And I think that is important. I think that does build community. Yeah, you definitely see a level of care. And I, I recognize that that's also a layer of time that goes into your process, right? And giving and then allowing all of the collaborators in the volume to have that time to think and, you know, uh, converse and affirm uh, and question ideas that come up throughout. Yeah, we would often send, we would read a, an essay and then we would send an email that would say, oh, you might want to refer or read this other person's essay, right? And then we would connect the scholars together. So that way they knew that they were working on, on similar ideas. Or if we saw something that was really theoretical, like we did in the, the Anne of Green Gables essay, um, had this really wonderful idea about reading as a way of, of travel, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we would pull quotes sometimes and say, you know, yeah. this is a really nice theoretical idea. Um, you might refer to this. And so yeah. we would just send that out to the entire group. I think too, one more thing that it helped was it helped for the essays to come together as chapters too. Um, in sections. So it wasn't, we didn't have to sit there with these, you know, very oddly connected essays and say, okay, now what are we going to call section one and what are we going to put in there? But they really, it was very organic in how they came together and how they just flowed and blended, you know, that there wasn't a struggle to fit them into a, into a space then. Yeah. And I think that's important too. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it it feels really, um, I think organic's the perfect word as you read it. You know, there's just a seamless uh, kind of journey that uh, that scholars are on uh, making their way. And, you know, I read from the beginning to the end, which is something we don't always do with collections either. You know, you might be like, oh, I want to read this one thing. But I think that as editors, you really encourage us to read this the way you would read a book, right? That it is a unified whole. Um, the hope, <laughs> the dream. <laughs> right. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about the 19th century and beyond? Your book focuses on the long 19th century, which is a long period, right? Um, but it also seems to open up so many, you know, I don't know if it's work to come or just ways to continue thinking about this. So where do you think the ideas of transatlantic girlhood can or do go in the 20th century and later? One thing that strikes me is because I did teach a whole class on um, the Grand Tour and the Grand Tour offered women an opportunity to take that journey physically literally, rather than through books or through art or through whatever, but that they could go on that tour. 
And I think that that hmm, the grand tour isn't a thing anymore. Now we take a gap year, right? And in their gap year, they're traveling um, perhaps through Europe, perhaps just the United States. I say just because, geez, it's home. But um, I think that need for more, the wanderlust, the desire to know and to be a part of something more, I think continues the transatlantic girlhood at the upper ages. But I think it starts, again, going back to the reading. I think it starts with reading about girls who traveled and then you want to do what they did. It may be somewhere in the back of your mind subconsciously. And you're thinking about that and then you start to take those steps too. So I do think it's still a part of our culture. I think it's not as maybe wealth driven as the Grand Tour was. Right. Because only a certain group of people did that. I think um, the more that girls read, I had a group of girls read a book. It's a 20th century book of uh, the war in Afghanistan. And it's called The Breadwinner. And it's a lovely story about a girl who has to dress as a boy in order to support her entire family after her father is taken prisoner. And... You know, I, I had girls who say, geez, I'd like to go to Afghanistan and see where she lived and what it was like for her. And I'm like, oh, that might not be such a good idea right now. You might want to wait a while for that. But I think we are inspired to take those those journeys based on what we've read. And, and the way the journeys are maybe done today is a little different, but I think it's still the same. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think this is instilled in us. I, and you can tell that from the long 19th century, right? So we begin a little bit earlier in the period and then we end in the, in the 20s, right? Um, we take this, right? We, we end cap it. Um, we, and I think um, we begin trying to think, I think that should I figure out which our latest novel was. I know I know we're in the Edwardian period, so we talk about the secret garden and a white a white heron at one point. So we are at the, the very beginning of the of the 20th century. And the wide, wide world chapter talks about how Ellen Montgomery is looking forward to the new woman, right? This idea that the new woman at the beginning of the 20th century and the end of the 19th century is becoming increasingly mobile. So I think in terms of 20th century scholarship, there's all of this increasing mobility for women, right? Especially as you get into World War I and World War II, there is this idea that women were beginning to travel and become more mobile because they were into this forced mobility. Now, of course, women are online, right? They're on social media. They're traveling all the time. They are thinking in transnational, global contexts all the time. This is not just part of, you know, reading practices where they're beginning to learn about the world, I'd say, you know, six, seven, eight through, you know, books, very thoughtfully given to them by their parents or maybe 
a creepy older male guardian who's hoping for something from them, right? <laughs> Instead, right, they have their phones where they're transported and they want to be, right? Because they're kids and they want to maybe resist their parents a little because they're kids. They want to know what's out there. So I think right now is a time to consider what's happening globally with girls. What do they want to know? What, what are the messages that they're receiving? And is this necessarily something that is always a good? Um, how is the media um, becoming? Because I do think that sometimes it can be, I mean, maybe the access is, is sort of capitalist in form, right? Um, right, this idea that you travel to get, you know, I, I don't know, to, to become something, but is that becoming about spending money? I oftentimes think about this, right? If you're giving these advertisements to travel, right? Is it just about the spending money? What is the what's next, right? That is what our book is getting at, right? In the 19th century, a lot of the what's next, right? Um, is going to be different for these girls. A lot of it's about spirituality or about independence, um, about mobility. But now, what is the what's next? I don't know the answer to that, right? I'm a 19th century scholar, right? But I think that would be the question that right, those who are looking at the novels now, right? And the, and the social media now might might be asking, right? What What's next for, for the girls looking at the media now and thinking about global travel and transatlantic travel? Yeah, I think it's, it's really fascinating when you talk about in a class how long it would have taken them to get from New York to London. It's not, you don't hop on a plane in this time period. And, and they're like, so what did they do on the boat all the time? You know, but just even thinking about that, then they start, and I'm like, well, what about a cruise? What do you do on the boat all the time on a cruise? <laughs> and they're thinking, oh yeah. And most of them have been on cruises, which I myself have never been on a cruise, but but they're able to make that connection then between the, the leisure travel of a cruise to wherever they went to this huge boat that would have taken, you know, loads of people from New York to London. And so to see that, because in their mind, everything's instantaneous too today. You know, well, why didn't you get a plane? Well, there weren't any. <laughs> there is some hardship associated with travel for even the ones who are really wealthy, right? So there's always hardship in our books for the ones in the 19th century, right, who were not wealthy. But even for the girls in the books that we're studying were very wealthy, there was some sort of hardship associated with travel that means struggle, that means growth, that translates to that in some way. So I don't know if there's always that that hardship now. I'm thinking about my um yeah. my father has this little book that or has this little t-shirt that just says explore on it um and we just got it from like the department store walmart i don't know costco but it just says explore there wasn't a lot of hardship for her to have this explore shirt um, right it is much different right now than it was at this time right and um, and so i don't know um if those like certainly the same messages, right, aren't going to apply, right? That struggle is going to be different. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think I could pick your brains for hours, <laughs> but uh, I, I we should probably start to think about bringing our conversation to a close. So, 
along those lines, I know you've worked so hard on this incredible book, Reading Transatlantic Girlhood. What have we not talked about today that you were hoping to get into a little bit? Could we close with some, you know, final ideas or questions or moments you'd like to share with us? One of the things I find interesting, and I don't know if you noticed it, Marlo, but my essay was the only one that looked at transatlantic travel in a negative way. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this woman, she was upper middle class, um, everything funded. She had her traveling companion. I mean, you know, her struggle was not the same as the struggle of some of the women who would have made that journey. Yeah. <clears throat> But that said, nothing satisfied her ever. She was just like, oh, it was like you read everything she wrote and you're going like, I'm so depressed now. Why would you, why why do you want to write this book? But it was compiled after she wrote a a lot of letters home and her letters home were published in the newspaper. And then the um, newspaper, um, person said why don't you put them together in a book and of course that you know made her delighted but I think about the reality of it and going back to what Luella said in that most people today will never understand the hardship the struggle and yet I think of all the immigrants coming across the southern border where Luella is and I think of their struggle right maybe not transatlantic Maybe it's all ground travel, but the struggle is real and it's not for leisure or pleasure or whatever. And I see pictures of little girls um, either being carried across the border or, you know, toggling across the border. One was drowned very recently Um, and it breaks your heart, you know, because when we think about girlhood and travel, we're thinking on a whole different, you know, we have all these essays and most of them are very, very positive. And I don't think that transatlantic travel then or travel today is always positive. So I think that is one thing that um, I would like personally to see more of is the truth of it and how we look at the truth of travel and not just the fantasy of it. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that our introduction talked about was that all of the, it was sort of interesting in this, the submissions that we got, um, that all of them were about the white women travelers. Um, and we mentioned that in the introduction that, you know, we didn't have any, um, any essays about the transatlantic slave trade, um, which was obviously another way that girls were traveling, another awful way that girls were traveling and struggling in a much different way than, you know, just in, in, having difficulty getting from New York to Boston. Um, and those those stories, right, I think ought to be recovered more. We mentioned um, Missouri Wright's book as being one, um, one sort of entree into that. And I think that other scholars are beginning to do that work. Um, but again, I think that the more work ought to be done in, in that, that, type of, um, that type of literature. Um, on, 
on another note, <laughs> that I wanted to to mention that I felt like we didn't talk about as much um, was the idea of travel, not simply on a literal level, but on this idea of an imaginative level, which I think helps everyone, right? So even those who are struggling now, right, are struggling, right, as they're coming right across the board, right, because of this idea of what travel will do for them, right? That travel, I think, just like the idea of girlhood, is invested with the idea of possibility, with hope for the future, of change and transformation. And that's something that all of our essays try to get across as well, right? That there is this idea of hope, um, of, of difference, of change making that I think happens no matter what time period that you're in. Um, and that it always seems to be something that people are are saying is, is worth the risk, right? Um, but the possibility and, and the hope. Um, and so I do think that that's, that's another sort of interesting thing that we, that we didn't get to, to talk about, but a lot of our essays go into, um, go into detail about travel as another idea of, um, you know, of possibility. Even if we're talking about slave narratives, as I'm thinking back, a lot of them do spend time talking about travel as changing them not only in this you know sort of struggling way but also right I've I've learned something right so let me have that with that or Douglas I'm thinking of Alado Equiano right talking about um like seeing I always uh, think about his sort of flying fishes right he talked he, he's on the boat but he also notices the flying fishes while he's on the boat um and beginning to see things um in a new way so in that struggle there's always this this learning that I think literature gives us that then we get to take afterwards, right? That we get to have that transactional experience from as readers where hopefully we can be transformed. So perhaps writers now can like take this up, right? Um, to, to do something, right? To, to help us begin to, to think about travel, both in the good, right? And, and the bad. Well, this has been such an amazing conversation. Um, thank you both for your book, which I think makes uh, such an important contribution to girlhood studies, to women's studies, to literary studies, um, transatlantic studies, all of that. Um, and I, it really has been a joy to discuss reading Transatlantic Girlhood with the authors Luella D'Amico and Robin Cadwallader. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.